We have been in, the, in Revelation, looking at the seven letters to the churches. We're done with that now. And from here, for the next weeks upon weeks, we're going to be walking through the Gospel of John. Uh, and the opening part of John is always read during the Christmas season. So we are, that's why we're skipping over the very opening. Have you ever been, I'm sure you have, I know this has happened to you, you've been in a shop or a restaurant and you feel like you're imposing on them. So something gets communicated like they're annoyed that you're there and it's puzzling because you know, this is a business. I'm coming to give you business. The whole reason for that place to exist is to sell you something. And here you are. So unless they have a monopoly on what they're selling. They are the only place that has this. The transaction is primarily for their good, because you can just go somewhere else. This particular transaction is for their good. So it's in their interest to be pleasant. Essentially, the power's with the buyer to you as you go in there. Well, that is a very different situation from where all the power is with the one who has what is desired. The one who, who has. So consider the opening of the book of Nehemiah. You remember this? In the court of Artaxerxes, king over Persia, king over Babylon, his Jewish cupbearer, Nehemiah, has been longing to ask the king for help, longing to ask him to give assistance to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And for weeks, Nehemiah has prayed, he's agonized, he's brought this request to the Lord, and the Lord has shaped his prayer. And finally, the day comes when Nehemiah breaks all the rules of court custom, and he allows his emotions to show. He takes his life in his hands by appearing sad. And that offense alone, could Artaxerxes could just send him to death. But the king isn't annoyed in that moment. And having all the power, he asks the question, what is it you want? What is it you want? Now, this is no shopkeeper transaction. All the power is with Artaxerxes. There is nowhere else Nehemiah can go. No one else can help. There's no other hope, and now he's on the spot, and the question is there, what is it you want? He breathes, he sends a prayer to heaven, and he answers, if it please the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, it's total deference, total deference. It's not a business transaction. All the power is in one place. Now, different from both of those situations is uh, when there are peers. This is what we experience typically, where you've given something to your neighbor and your neighbor is somehow in your debt. Um, and now you need something. You need something from your neighbor. Or if, friends, we do this all the, all, all the time. You've given something to a friend 
you've got a bit of an advantage on them now. So when you ask them, you, you know, so if I have you in my debt in some way, me, Ben, if I have you in my debt in some way, uh, it is much easier for me to ask for something from you, right? Or if you have me in your debt, it's easier to ask. And we are always making those kinds of calculations. We're always doing that measuring. Usually it's subconsciously. But where, we ask, where can I get what I want so that I maintain an advantage? We don't want to be put at disadvantage. We don't want to indebt ourselves ever to anyone. Subconsciously, sometimes consciously, we avoid relational transactions and material transactions that make us feel indebted. Or even just in a weaker position. Do you know that working in you? You just you don't want to be in a weaker position with respect to anyone. And we will only indebt ourselves or humble ourselves when the need pinches too tight to avoid it. And I have to. I have to ask. That's a heritage of the fall. That is not redeemed nature working in us. That is part of our fallenness, but it persists with us much of the time because it's rarely examined. It just is there. That's a long opening. <laughs> that, that's just opening. But it's pointing to the heart of the message today, to the first words of Jesus recorded in the Gospel of John. Jesus says, what is it you want? Or what we would probably say today, can I help you? Can I help you? And when that question comes to us, what is it you want? Or can I help you? The default answer that arises from our corrupted human nature, the default answer is, no, no, I'm fine. No, no, I'm, fi I'm fine. I can, I have what I need. Or I can get it myself. I'll figure it out. But if we're going to grow in the grace of God, if there is any hope of growing in the grace of God and walking well in his light, our answer needs to be different. We need a different default. We need to become more like disciples and less like pretending gods. I have no need. That's, that's pretending godhead. I have no need. Or less like shoppers with a list that we want him to fulfill. So as we consider this initial moment, this is in John chapter 1. Please do look if you have a Bible. When Jesus poses the question, that first question, poses it to the disciples, we want to set the scene. Uh, the opening 18 verses of the Gospel of John they set out the big picture of who Jesus is. He is the Word of God. The Word who was with God, who is God. And He entered His creation in order to redeem it and to offer grace to everyone who would receive His rule. It's offered. 
And that, that opening is meant to be a lens for everything else that is presented in this gospel. This is who Jesus is. Now let me tell you about him so that you might believe in him. Put your trust in him. And he, John begins the story of this creator who has come to earth with the herald. It's not a name. It's an office. The one running ahead. The one announcing the coming of the king who comes behind. Behold, the king comes. The king comes. That's a herald. John the Baptist. John was in, he was in the desert. In an area of desert on the east side of the Jordan River. If you're picturing this, the Sea of Galilee is here. Uh, the Dead Sea is here. The Jordan River connects the Sea of Galilee with the Jordan River. From your perspective, Jerusalem is right here. Uh, Galilee's here, where Jesus grew up. And John's baptizing somewhere on the east side. We don't know exactly where. It says Bethany on the east side. That doesn't exist anymore. There's no record of where exactly that was. Uh, I favor a place just south of Galilee, so kind of far from Jerusalem, because of the number of Galileans that are part of this. John the Baptist himself is a Galilean. Remember? Remember who he is? Luke tells us that he's a cousin of Jesus through their mothers. We don't know first cousin, second cousin, we don't know that, but he's kin of Jesus through the mothers. And they were born within a year of each other. So John is a young man. I don't know how you picture John the Baptist. He's about 30 years old. And he's causing a stir, a big stir. We're nowhere told how the movement started. Like, where did John first begin preaching? Was it in the streets of Jerusalem? It may have been in the villages of Galilee. But at some point, he had to begin announcing the Messiah is coming. The Messiah is coming. Prepare. What the apostles made clear, so we don't know where that begins. What make, they make clear is the good news about Jesus Christ. This, this good news began to be announced through John. Each one of the Gospels fixes the beginning of Jesus' ministry with John, the Baptist, as a herald. King Jesus had a herald. And every Israelite knew that when the Messiah came, there would be a forerunner. It was part of the prophecies. Isaiah said, there would be a voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way for the Lord. The Messiah, the Christ, would have a forerunner announcing him. And unambiguously, this is the role that John claims for himself. This is what he says. This is who I am. I am that voice. He's, he says that verbally. He also says it symbolically. He's wearing camel's hair with a leather girdle, a leather belt, and he's eating locusts and wild honey, and he's living out in the desert. Those are all signs. Those are prophetic signs. Nobody else is doing that. He's taking on the visible markers of a prophet. That's the very description of what the prophet Elijah wore. In 2 Kings, we get that exact description. 
That's what Elijah looked like. And this is a big deal because there's been no proven prophet of God for 400 years. Israel has been without God speaking to his people through a prophet. 400 years. And now this wild young man is out in the desert announcing that the one is coming. The anointed, the promised one. We haven't had a message from the Lord in 400 years. And out of nowhere, it's time. The king is coming. That's a big deal. The anointed. Uh, it's Messiah in Hebrew. It's Christ in Greek. Same title, same, same person. The promised king. Whom God has chosen and anointed to redeem his people. And so people from all over Israel are coming to hear him. And what they're asking, why, why do they come? Why are they coming to hear John? It might be sufficient to say, all right, the king's coming. They come to John because a herald goes before the king. Where the herald is, the king is going to show up. And so they're there with John. They're watching. They're waiting. They're looking. All of these disciples there are waiting to catch some news. Maybe he, today he will drop something further that, some further news about the Christ. Well, if that weren't enough, he's doing something else that also catches everyone's attention, especially the attention of the authorities. He's baptizing. This is John the Baptist. He's baptizing. That might seem like a normal religious thing, right? For us, we take that for granted. That's a religious thing. People baptize. But what he was doing was radically new. Baptism was a standard rite for the Jews. But it was for pagans who were becoming Jewish. It's not for Jews. It was overseen by the Jewish elders. There was circumcision, and then there was a ritual washing where pagan men would wash off their paganness and uncleanness. But as part of announcing this king, John is baptizing Jews. That's shocking. I don't, I don't know if that can actually hit for us. but John is saying... John is declaring that God is saying that people within the covenant community need to be clean. They need to be prepared. They need to be ready for this king. And so that's why the, the Pharisees and the other leaders are saying, hold on, hold on. What are you doing? Who do you think you are? He's claiming to have the authority of God. Because he's departing from established custom. You can't just depart from established custom. Specifically, we don't baptize Jews who are already part of the covenant people of God. He's doing something new, and it didn't come from the elders. It didn't come from the leaders. So their question, who are you claiming to be? That's what they ask in John 1. It's a question about where his authority comes from to do this thing, to introduce a new custom. And again, he clearly says, I am the herald of the Christ. 
And that's what this is about. And you can get on board with it or not, but the king is coming. I baptize with water, but after me comes one greater than me because he was before me. The the thong of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I am not worthy to touch the feet of this king who is coming. So what a moment. What a moment. Out, Out in the desert, Jews from everywhere are streaming to him. And the people accept his authority as a prophet. There's intense expectation that any moment a revolution could break out. So that's part of this undertone. They're expecting this Christ, this king, is going to lead a revolution. At any moment, the revolution could break out. So if anybody had a, a, um, if they were zealots, if they were ready to fight, they're there. Intense expectation. Who is the Messiah? It it would be a little bit like a a motorcade that comes through a modern city where the the police are coming ahead, there are are sirens blaring, the the way gets cleared, and everyone's looking and everyone's crowding. Who? Who Who is it? Who's coming? And the leaders don't like any part of this disruption. But it's very exciting. Very exciting. And then one day, verse 29, John sees a man walking out of the wilderness. And he says, look, look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant. This is the one I meant. I myself didn't know him as the Christ. But the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Now, this day comes, readers of the Bible, this day comes uh, after Jesus had gone into the wilderness for 40 days. There's a gap there. 40 days earlier, Jesus had been baptized. He had been there. When he comes into the water, John didn't know him. I mean, he knew him as Jesus, but he didn't know him as the Christ. And there Jesus is gathering up in himself all the individual baptisms that have happened. And in himself, as representative of all Israel, he repented on their behalf. He had no sins of his own to repent of. It's on on behalf of this crowd, on behalf of his nation. He is baptized. And the Holy Spirit, John saw the Holy Spirit came down and anointed him as king. John saw it, and now he joyfully proclaims what he saw. And look, the Lamb of God. I have seen and I testify, this is the Son of God. Now, how long have Peter and Andrew... James and John, Philip and Nathaniel, been there. How long have they been part of this crowd? We don't know. There is, there's not an in, in indication. We don't know. But they've been there. They've become John's disciples. 
And so there they are, baptized, listening, watching, waiting, day by day, catching whatever John has to say, they're disciples. Meaning they have accepted his authority as God's prophet. What John is speaking is from the Lord, and they want to catch it. And they want to live righteously according to the ways of God. So whatever John says, they're eager. And they believe that God's prophet will correctly interpret God's word, God's law. Even if it means abolishing established customs of the Jews, which he's doing. These disciples are willing to hear from God. Do you get that? That that is so core. They are willing to hear from God. They're willing to act on the basis of what God says through his prophet. And so when John the Baptist says, that guy, the one by himself, there he is. They get up and they follow him. One of them we know is Andrew. John tells us that in another moment. The other is presumed to be John, the writer of this gospel. John has this understated way that whenever he does something, he's part of the action, he doesn't say his name. Andrew and John. And now we come to it. Now we come to it. They're following Jesus. I don't know if you've ever been in this situation. They're trying to get a little closer. They're uncertain. They're uncertain. Were they planning to speak to him? Or were they just going to see where he's going, what he's doing? Is he going to say anything? Because they have accepted John's testimony. What's he going to do? We're not, we're not told what was going on in their minds. Probably because their motives were a colossal mess, like my motives and your motives. Just, it's all there. Clearly, they want the Christ because they want Israel to be all Israel can be. They want that. Some part of them, I think, wants to be holy because they're willing to listen to God. Some part probably wants to be in on the movement. This is, this is where it's happening. This is the exciting place. It's where the announcement is coming. But don't, don't forget who they are. They are just young fishermen. Young fishermen. These are poor kids from poor families. And I seriously doubt they had any ambition to become friends with Israel's king. That's absurd. I think we read back, it's easy for us to read back their later relationship into these earlier moments. They had no ambition to be friends with the Christ. The Christ is for the important people. It's this, that is not their place and they know it. And so they're following with that hesitancy that you or I would follow a royal person a famous athlete, would you have the presumption to just walk up and introduce you? The gap here is far greater than anything we can imagine. 
So they're watching. But the fact that they're watching Jesus means they have believed the testimony. And then it comes. Jesus stops. He turns fully. The verb there communicates a full, complete turn and giving of attention. It's not looking back over, oh, hey, you're there. He stops. He turns. He fixes his attention on them and says, what is it you want? What do you seek? Or can I help you? That's a breathtaking moment. It's it's one of those moments where all of their life up to that point comes to a a concentrated moment. This is not a shopkeeper moment that I can now give him my list of the things that I want, the plans that I have. This is not your peer who owes you a favor. Oh, well, now that you ask, this is Israel's Long, long, long awaited king. The one that this whole movement has been anticipating. And he has stopped and he's looking in your face and he's asking, What do you seek? What is it that you want? Did they even know what they wanted? Do you even know what you want at any given time? Did they know what they wanted? And this is Andrew and John. These are two younger brothers. And this is younger brothers in a culture where only the older brother speaks. They are not accustomed to being asked, even in their own household, what do you think? They don't have an opinion. They're quiet middle children. And their answer is very simple, though. And I think it's, it must be perfectly honest. We want to be where you are. And they don't even have the temerity to say it that way. They ask, they say it, they answer with extreme humility. They answer a question with a question. Teacher, where are you staying? So they don't, they don't even go so far as to say, can we be with you? It's passive. Where are you staying? But Jesus, he knows, he knows the real question and he answers it. Come. I, I know what you're asking. Come. Yeah, you can be with me. Come see the place. And they spend the rest of the afternoon with him. Come and you'll see. We claim to be Jesus' disciples too. That was a disciple answer. We want to be where you are. Can I be where you are? And disciples of Jesus, at some point or other, have this experience in common. This This is a church experience. At some point, whether you were raised in the church or you weren't, you have felt the full attention of Jesus Christ. And if you haven't, you will. Because he brings it. The full attention 
You've felt it and you've realized that he was asking the question, what do you want? Can I help you? And young ones, if you're in here, young ones, if you haven't yet heard Jesus ask, what is it you want? You will hear that. And you'll hear it at intervals throughout life because it comes back. And he comes back with, what do you really want? It's the clarifying question. It's the question. It's the ultimate question. We could say it's the question that determines our, our ultimate path, our eternity. And it determines the path we take to eternity. What is it you really want? Andrew and John answer, we want to be where you are. We want to be where you are. That is the humblest, meekest way of saying we want to know Jesus Christ as he is. We want to know God as he is. It's not just wanting to know his teachings. And I think for modern Americans, this is a, this is a snare. Christians can, easily become, Christians can easily become functional atheists who are philosophers of Christianity. Functionally atheist philosophers of Christianity. What I mean is having no real interaction with the living God, but being very versant in what Christianity is, even in what Jesus taught, the teachings of Jesus. We can seek to live morally according to those teachings and show forth this wonderful way of life. That's almost no different than a Confucian. There's a wonderful way of life that brings health. It's good. Let me show you. I'll show it forth. That's a philosopher. But Jesus Christ offers something else. To his disciples, he says, come, come be with me and know me. Come be with me and know me and you'll have abundant life. To know me is eternal life. It's not a philosophy of life. It's life. And being, this kind of knowing is difficult for us, especially on the front end. Being with someone in authority, learning from someone in authority is a unique kind of knowing. It's a, a unique kind of relationship. And it's very rare for Western people because we reject authority. We hate authority. We don't want anyone in authority over us. We're used to having shopkeepers and peers. We're used to having those people ask us what we want, but not someone with real authority. But we can know God. We can. And we know him by being with him. But to know him as he is, to know the creator of the universe as he is, we have to yield to him the initiative. 
of one with authority. In that relationship, we do not have the authority. And he is taking initiative. I'm announcing this to you right now. He's taking initiative. Even here, in this, this space right here, he's taking initiative. Jesus is asking, what do you want? What is it you seek? Ultimately, what is it you seek? So, what is it? Do you have a plan that you're wanting him to make happen? Or are you willing to be caught up in his plans? Swept up in his plans? You having a very particular, wonderful role in it, but it's his plan. Are you willing to let him lead? Are you willing to follow him? And when he turns his full attention on you and says, what do you want? Are you willing to be a disciple and say, I just want to be where you are? You are. Lord, search us. Thank you that your word is living and active and that when we open the word and we, we begin to hear your words, you make it alive, that we can be with you. I pray that you would stir in our hearts the desire to know you, to be with you. In Jesus' name.